In the world of contact sports, we hear the word a lot, CTE. But what is it really? Well, on this episode of the Concast, we're going to talk about it. podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. So for today's episode, we've got episode number 72. And for today's episode, I want to discuss, when we discuss this in our concussion Facebook group, for those people that take my concussion course, we have an ongoing Facebook group where we present four papers a month for people to read, and then every month we do a journal club. I think it was last month or maybe two months ago, this was the journal that we did in our journal club, and it, I really, really enjoyed this journal article, and so this is where the basis of this podcast episode is coming from. And the journal article centered around CTE, or Cumulative Traumatic Encephalopathy, which is a really, really long word for a new type, relatively new type of brain injury that's been discussed in the world of contact sports. And as we go through it today's episode, you may have heard of this and not known it, um, or you may be well aware. And so we're going to talk about really what this paper discussed, because it was a very frank, well-written summary of what the current evidence and literature is saying around this topic as well as pulling in a little bit more information from other papers and studies that have just recently come out to try and get a better handle on what this condition may in fact be and how, as clinicians, might we be able to better identify and get the patients that need help the appropriate help so they can get back to trying to live a productive, happy, healthy life, which is what we want for all of our patients. So the, the paper that we discussed in the journal club was by Barry Willer from the University of Buffalo and some colleagues, and it was titled Long-Term Neural Cognitive Mental Health Consequences of Contact Sports. It was published in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine in 2020. And the purpose of the article was to attempt to establish a link between repetitive blunt force trauma or repetitive head impacts and the neuropathology or the disease of CTE, as well as the neurocognitive side effects of CTE. So really establish a link between, or discuss rather, the established link or not between repetitive head impacts and whether or not that causes essentially long-term complications or long-term damage. So the first thing that we should discuss is what is a repetitive head impact. This might also be known as a subconcussive blow. So these are individuals that are partaking in certain things or have suffered from certain things where they haven't necessarily got a concussion or a number of concussions, but they've been put in circumstances where 
the head is taking repetitive impacts below forces that are causing a concussion. And the first thing that we need to recognize is we don't actually know what that force is. We can't really measure it in in force as we would like a car accident and its relationship to whiplash, like a G-force. And even when we try and attempt to do that, it's really hard to distinctly say what force might cause a concussion in a car accident or what force might cause whiplash because everybody's so variable. But we have a, a reasonable idea. In the subconcussive blow category, we're not really sure as to what these exact forces are because these forces happen in a variety of environments and a variety of circumstances. But what we are beginning to understand is that individuals that take hits to the head that are lesser in nature over long periods of time may in fact suffer some consequences of that a little bit later down the line, which we'll discuss at length throughout today's episode. So just a little bit of history and background that's discussed in the paper. This concept of repetitive hits to the head creating long-term consequence has been studied and discussed since the early 20s when individuals would observe, particularly at that time, boxers. And as boxers got up into their later years, they would show things like tremors, slow and writhing movements, issues with speech, even signs and symptoms of dementia. And this became more prominent in the 50s where a rudimentary definition of CTE or something like it was known as punched drunk. So they would often refer to boxers as being punched drunk and having these more long-term deficits following the conclusion of their career. Today, CTE or cumulative traumatic encephalopathy is considered to be neurodegenerative, which means that over time the nervous system starts to deplete a little bit. However, there still remains to be a solid consensus on even official definitions as well as inclusion criteria for what exactly CTE is. In fact, the first sort of mainstream publicity of CTE came in around 2005, which is what the movie Concussion with Will Smith is based upon. And this is when Dr. Bennett O'Malu who is a neuroforensic pathologist, brought CTE to light after examining the brain of a former NFL player that committed suicide at the age of 50. And what he discovered in his examination was that it appeared that this brain looked a little bit different than some of the other brains and individuals that he had done autopsies on. If you've seen that movie, there was a lot of controversy between what happened to him, the relationship between the NFL at the time, and such. Now, CTE was officially defined in 2015, and the definition that came out, or a more formal definition, was that patients had a perivascular accumulation of something called tau in the neurons and the astrocytes, and cell processes in an irregular pattern at the depths of the sulci of the frontal, temporal, and parietal cortices. Now, there have also been some people since that time that have added to that definition. But one of the primary discussions around CTE is this accumulation of tau or tau protein, as well as shrinking or atrophy of areas of the brain, including the temporal and frontal regions. 
as well as an enlargement of the ventricles of the brain. And the ventricles of the brain are these holes inside the brain that carry a lot of the cerebral spinal fluid that ends up nourishing the brain and makes the brain buoyant inside the skull. So again, in 2005, it was really brought to light after many, many years of not having sort of formal investigation of it by Bennett O'Malley. And then in 2015, there was a more formal definition. Now, that doesn't mean that research hadn't been going on with respect to CTE for many, many years. And the University of Boston is one of the primary brain centers by which this research has occurred. Two more prominent researchers and one of the most prominent researchers in CTE is Anne McKee. She did a study in 2013 that examined 85 former NFL and NHL players and determined that 65 of those 85 players, or 77%, met the criteria for CTE. One of her colleagues, Jesse Metz, two years later did a study examining 111 brains of former professional athletes. And in his study, 99.1% met the criteria for CTE. Now, one of the primary concerns with these studies is these studies had no control group and they had very low interrater reliability. So let's discuss what that means. So the way that CTE is currently diagnosed is postmortem, which means that we can only diagnose it in a brain of somebody that's passed. So we have no real control group with respect to brains that we can look at as a baseline. So all of these individuals that are coming in have a history of contact sport. The other thing is that interrater reliability, which means in all of these studies, it's the same pathologist that's looking for the CTE under microscope and throughout the autopsy. And therefore, there won't be an agreement across multiple raters that this is in fact a CTE brain. So for example, it's not like myself and I've got three other people that are examining the same thing and we can all agree. It's just me examining the brain and I'm coming up with what the criteria are within the current definitions that we hold. And therefore, I'm making the assumption that based on my research that I have done, either 77% in the case of Anne McKee's study or 99.1% in the case of Jesse Matt's study met the criteria for CTE. So from a pathophysiological or a disease-based process, what is CTE? So we've heard about this protein tau. Tau is a protein that already exists in the brain and tau provides structural integrity to the microtubule of the neuron. So the neuron is the brain cell. We have 200 billion neurons within our brain and we've got 300 trillion connections between those 200 billion neurons. So the brain is a very, very busy place. And the lattice structure of each neuron is kept structurally integral by this tau protein. Over time, what can happen in repetitive head impacts that are of lower force or what is thought to have happened, maybe is what I should say more accurately, is there might be shearing of this microtubule structure and as a result of that, it will release tau into the extracellular space, causing what is known as a neural fibrillary tangle as a result of that tau becoming hyperphosphorylated or a phosphate molecule will attach it after it leaves 
the neuron and goes into this extracellular space. We can also refer to this as P-tau. Interestingly enough, the brain can't rid itself of tau protein, so the tau protein starts to accumulate in this extracellular space. Now, the interesting thing about tau protein accumulation is this is not specific and isolated to people with repetitive head impacts or blunt force trauma. We also know that tau protein is an unhealthy manner of brain aging. So that is a really important thing to understand that tau protein exists outside of blunt force trauma. It's part of unhealthy brain aging. One of the other things, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, that happens to the brain is it will shrink um, both the gray matter and the white matter and certain lobes of the brain can shrink and then we can get enlargement of those ventricles as well. And so when you do a brain autopsy, that's what you're looking for, the accumulation of P-tau, the atrophy or shrinking of both gray and white matter, as well as the enlargement of the ventricles of the brain. So CTE is really diagnosed post-mortem. Now recently, or more recently, physicians are really trying to understand something that they've called TES, or Traumatic Encephalopathy Syndrome. And these are people that are still living and struggling as a result of RHIs or repetitive head impacts. Because the premise is that there are certain people that might be suffering from a brain injury and are really, really struggling. And what medicine is trying to do is better define this so people aren't going out and doing acts of self-harm or harming others. So people are really trying to understand this disorder one of the more prominent athletes as well that this was really discussed in was Aaron Hernandez. And there was a Netflix documentary done on Aaron Hernandez and his life. And in fact, after he passed away, they did a autopsy in his brain and found that he in fact had CTE and was, I believe, the most young athlete to have ever been diagnosed with CTE. And I think that was in his mid to late 20s when he passed away. So many people previously thought that it used to be kind of a byproduct of aging. People would get CTE into their late 50s, early 60s. But after the Aaron Hernandez case, people started to look at it a little bit differently. As I said, people are trying to understand now this TES or people potentially living with brain injuries as a result of RHIs, repetitive head impacts over a long period of time. So in April 2019, the Neurological Disorders and Stroke, or NINs in the U.S., got together with 20 clinical scientists, including people like Anne McKee, Robert Cantu, other really, really prominent brain scientists, and 11 institutions across all disciplines, things like neurology, psychiatry, and they embarked on an eight-month process led by Dr. Katz, who was the primary project organizer. And what they tried to do was create a consensus statement. And in May 14th of just this year, 2021, this consensus statement was published in the Journal of Neurology. And it was titled National Institute of Neurological Diseases and Stroke Consensus Diagnostic Criteria for Traumatic Encephalopathy Syndrome. And so during this consensus statement, they discuss things like pathophysiology. They also discuss things like what might be inclusion criteria to try and help diagnose individuals with brain injury from repetitive head impacts over time 
who may not necessarily have a history of concussion. So the first criteria was exposure to repetitive head impacts. So some examples that they gave were contact sports, five years of organized football with two or more of those years in high school or at a higher level, including college or university. Other circumstances might be military service, particularly with exposure to blast injuries, history of domestic violence. And these were not the only circumstances, but these were sort of the three primary examples that were given. So first, you have to be exposed to repetitive, low-grade head impact for many, many years. Secondly, do you have a progressive course of cognitive impairment? So do you have things like loss of short-term memory? Are you having issues with planning, organizing, or judgment? And or do you have neurobehavioral dysregulation? So are you suffering from impulsivity, rage, violent outbursts, etc.? Now, some of the other things that the clinical scientists said in this study was that there was no other primary neurological cause, psychiatric cause, or medical reason for the symptoms that you were suffering. So there was nothing else that was diagnosed. And they also said, which I think is really, really important, is that TES can also be diagnosed alongside another psychiatric disorder. So for example, if you're suffering from a diagnosed mood disorder, if you have another neurological disease like multiple sclerosis, for example, TES could be diagnosed in conjunction with that. And this is something that we refer to in medicine as a comorbidity. So this was really the first time that there has been a consensus statement on trying to look at CTE, which was diagnosed post-mortem before, and trying to now create some diagnostic criteria around getting patients with brain injury due to repetitive subconcussive blows help, again, trying to prevent them from harming themselves or harming others. So if we go back now to the Willer study that was looking at the summary of CTE, it was starting to try and see whether there were really causative effects or correlational effects between people that have had repetitive head impacts and some of the complications that have been discussed a lot. For example, there are a number of studies that are looking at former athletes against matched controls, which means people of the same age that did not play athletics. And in the studies, these fail to correlate the actual participation in sport to CTE or TES. So again, this sort of diagnosed cognitive disorder because of low-grade impact to the head. One of the things that's discussed by Willer in this study is the fact that a lot of these findings, which are largely cognitive, so they might be, for example, the person suffering from anxiety or depression, are often self-reported. However, in the studies, when they're using objective measurable tools that are validated in the research, the self-reported findings and the objective findings did not necessarily match up. They also tried to answer the question, is anxiety from having CTE maybe producing more cognitive symptoms than anxiety of people of the same age that did not participate in contact sport? And this again across the studies that they analyzed was an inconsistent finding. 
One of the other particularly interesting discussion points as well was, does having CTE increase your likelihood of other neurological diseases? And there were some studies that they paid particular notable attention to. There was a study by Laham, I believe, in 2012 that saw that those individuals that had CTE or concluded rather that those individuals that had CTE were three to four times higher than the general population of getting another neurological disease as a result of having CTE at the same time. Now, Willer did not make any conclusions based on this research. He was simply presenting other existing research. One of the other topics they discussed as well were looking at imaging studies. So could they look at brains of individuals that had participated in contact sports and say that they looked any different than individuals that did not participate in contact sports? So there are some imaging studies that have found things like cortical thinning, which we talked a little bit about, some brain atrophy or shrinking of the brain. There's also studies that have looked at part of the brain known as the hippocampus responsible for for memory having smaller volume. But there are also studies, imaging studies, that find absolutely no correlation between contact sports and those that have not participated in contact sports. One of the other interesting topics is pitfalls and factors involved in this research that might be limiting our understanding or creating bias in the research that's being done. This might include things like looking at other factors of health profile involved in athletes. So for example, athletes may have more musculoskeletal and orthopedic injuries than the general population from playing years and years of professional sports. We also know that individuals that were former athletes often have a hard time once their career ends and they lose that athletic identity. We also know that there are several other health factors that go into things like anxiety and depression, things like weight, lean mass, social setting, etc. The majority of these studies were not taking these into account and looking at the brain in isolation and the relationship between the brain and some of the symptoms that the person might be feeling. We know that individuals can suffer anxiety and depression and other cognitive symptoms for a variety of reasons. We also know that athletes that have a lot of persistent pain for potentially other reasons, let's say they have persistent pain because they've got low back pain or persistent hip pain or persistent shoulder pain, this might also lead to anxiety and depression. So the question becomes, for example, I have a football player, they played football for 30 years, they've got a history of persistent back pain, they've had two knee replacement surgeries, and they're also complaining that they have anxiety and depression. And so we know that they've played football, and so they've been put into this CTE study. And let's say the athlete is self-reporting that they have these symptoms. However, when we use these objective measures, they don't necessarily match up. Well, the athlete may in fact have anxiety and depression for another reason. It may be because of their back pain or their hip pain or their athletic identity. And we can't always definitively say that's because they have CTE. And so this was one of the first papers that I thought really did a great job at talking about all of the potential limitations and pitfalls to studies. And their conclusion, 
was as follows. They said, essentially, and I quote, it is safe to say that some former contact athletes will face some level of neurodegeneration because of their sport-related concussions or subconcussive blows or repetitive head impacts. However, in terms of saying something like all football players will end up this way or all hockey players will end up this way, very, very difficult to say. We also don't know whether there are other potential factors that go into developing CTE or traumatic encephalopathy syndrome, things like genetics, we still don't know. In terms of biomarker studies, things like blood and cerebrospinal fluid and looking at whether there are any markers that might help dictate whether somebody is at higher risk of CTE or not, those studies still don't really exist and there isn't any robust evidence to suggest that blood or cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers will help people predict whether a certain patient will be more or less likely to suffer from CTE as a result of participating in contact sport. So they came to the conclusion that there probably will be some athletes that suffer from this because of playing contact sport. However, playing contact sport as a sole reason for this cannot be a foregone conclusion, which I think is what many reasonable clinicians have been saying that have studied this for a really, really long time. I think where people are getting upset is where people in professional sports like commissioners and such are coming out and making statements where there has been no link, therefore this doesn't happen. And that's simply not true. There are studies that have made the link. However, these studies are also saying that this issue is complex, ever-evolving, and very, very new in terms of the research, citing again that in terms of the first real publicly diagnosed case was in 2005, which is we're looking at just 16 years ago, which is very, very new. So there's still a lot of research to be done in this space. And in terms of looking at TES moving forward, now that there's a consensus statement, I think that individuals worldwide are going to be looking at this in a lot more detail against this criteria. And hopefully that just creates more and more quality research so individuals can get the help that they need. Now, I guess for patients and people listening and practitioners, the question always becomes is, well, what are our practice implications? Like, what should we do as practitioners based on this new information that's out there? And so I think that first understanding that the research is still really, really new, it's ever evolving, and we can't make claims one way or the other as to what truly causes CTE or TES. There are definitely going to be people, especially if you work in the brain injury space, that may complain of these symptoms. These symptoms are typically cognitive in, in nature, so the person will complain of things like short-term memory, planning, judgment. They might also experience anxiety or depression. And then the one that seems to be pretty common is that neurobehavioral dysregulation, so things like impulsivity aggression, violent outbursts, etc. So this is still really, really hard to diagnose whether these symptoms are truly related to CTE or not. But for us as practitioners, when referring to a mental health professional, we have to understand that the symptoms are what is going to be treated, and those aren't really necessarily going to change. So it's going to remain things like cognitive behavioral therapy, psychology, and psychiatric referral to help 
facilitate getting the patient the best access to care and the best quality of care that they can to allow them to have the best outcomes possible. So really, I think for individuals that aren't necessarily treating mental health disorders, but are working within the space of the paramedical community, you know, I still like to have questions about anxiety, depression, and mood on my health history intake. I still like to give out generalized anxiety questionnaires or PHQ questionnaires for depression when I feel it is appropriate and then allowing the appropriate referral to be made back to the family doctor so they can get the best care that they can and allow them to live the best life that they can because that's ultimately what us as clinicians are are really our goal is for our patients. So my question for you today is had you heard of the term traumatic encephalopathy syndrome before the episode? And if so, if you have any great resources, I'd love to be made aware of them. So please uh, forward them on my way. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one.